Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So Paul says that whatever I have gained, whatever I've accumulated, whatever I have possessed through the righteousness done in the past, he says, I count it all as loss compared to one thing. One thing. Compared to the righteousness of of, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And, And I consider all things rubbish, that I could be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness that comes from Christ. You know, and he said, you know, I'm not looking behind. I'm not looking at all the mistakes I've made. I'm not looking at all the issues that I've got. I'm looking ahead and I'm pressing on towards that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You know, as a church, our first calling is to know God. You know, and that's a mystery in and of itself. That we could actually know the creator of the universe, the one who is holy and righteous and good in every single way. And yet we are broken and sinful and often rebellious. And yet he longs to know us. And the means by which he has communicated himself is not just an argument, it's a person. That he came in the person, the form of Jesus Christ, and now today through the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts, to illuminate our minds, to open our ears and our eyes to the glory of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, there's nothing, nothing compared to that. But there is a lot that gets in the way of that. (laughs) And that's why we're going through Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes is about all the stuff that gets in the way of worshiping God. And you know what it's called? Idols. You know, Calvin, John Calvin, the great reformer, said, your heart is an idol factory. (laughs) It's just constantly chunking out more idols and things to worship, looking to stuff in the world to give us what God can give. And one of the most powerful, Jesus spent more time talking about this than he talked about sex or any other topic, is money. And I'm glad we got financial peace coming up. Uh, If you heard about that class, an opportunity to try to understand your wealth through the vision of God's eyes. But nothing is more deceitful than our wealth. It talks to us, doesn't it? I mean, it's keeping you up at night. Maybe not last night, but some nights. I mean, if I can be honest, there's been nights where I've been up and my primary focus is what I have or what I don't have, what I think I need. What Wealth has this great impact on the human soul. You know, it was interesting this week, I was, I was actually reading a commentary and it reminded me of this old, old 700-year-old story by this guy named Jeff, Jeff Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales, 700 years old. And it is just a, it's so relevant for today. It's about these t- three lawless guys. And they hear this rumor that death is down by the creek, he's down by the old oak tree, all right? And so these three lawless guys say, let's go kill death. That's a manly thing to do. (laughs) We're gonna go kill death. Okay. So they go on this journey to travel to find death. And they go down to the base of this oak tree where they're told that he is gonna be sitting. And you know what they find there? 
They don't find death. They find a big old pile of money. I think gold. I guess back then be gold bullion or something like that, you know, shining, glimmering in the sun. And, and they're excited. They've lost track of the journey and the mission that they're on. They're just excited to have all this wealth and how it's going to change their life. And so, you know, they're celebrating. And one of them says, listen, guys, let's spend the night here. Enjoy this. Let me go into town, get some wine, get some food, because we are going to celebrate. We're going to live high in the hog. So he heads off. He heads off to the nearest town. And as he goes, it says that evil possessed him. And as evil possessed him, he started to think, you know, I could get all this money for myself if I just take the wine, put a little rat poison in it, and we go back, it's all going to be mine. Now, while he's doing that, the other two men are thinking the same thing. You know, if we kill Bill or Brad or whoever his name is, as he's heading off to town, we can divide this between us and we're going to have it all. So here, here he comes back from the town with his wine and his food. They stab him to death. And what do they do to celebrate? Pop open that wine. And death was found at the foot of the oak tree. But the story isn't about death. It's the deceitfulness of wealth. That Jesus says nothing is more deceitful. When the word of God comes in, he talks about this in a parable. When he's talking about the parable of sowers, remember that? And he says, when the word of God comes in, the deceitfulness of wealth, it chokes out the power of the spirit and the power of the word in our lives. And see, if it's deceitful, by nature, that means we don't know its impact in our life. See, I have people come into my office and they may confess lust. I have people that come to my office, they confess anger. I don't have people who come into my office that confess greed. Because the very nature of greed is that it lies to you. It says it's not your problem, it's their problem. And see, today we don't live in a caste system, which means all of us kind of live together, and that means you always know somebody that has a lot more than you. And because of that, we kind of get ourselves in this lull where I don't have as much as they do, therefore wealth is not affecting me to that degree. And scripture's constantly saying, watch out for the deceitfulness of wealth. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is walking right into that because it's gonna steal the joy of knowing Christ and having a relationship with God is the danger of wealth. So what we're gonna do is jump back into Ecclesiastes chapter five. We're gonna pick it up in verse eight. And we're gonna go all the way to chapter six, verse nine. Now, if we have enough time, we're gonna get there. I'm probably gonna read to the end of chapter five. The first service, we didn't quite get there, so I've got too much here. But if the Spirit's leading, hopefully he'll take us to where he wants us to go. So Ecclesiastes chapter five, we'll pick it up in verse eight. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. At the matter, for the high official is watched by the higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor does he who love, loves wealth with his income. This also is a, a vanity, it's hevel. When goods increase, they increase also who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but simply to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats much or little, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun, riches 
that were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hands, nothing to give his son. As he came from his his mother's womb, so shall he go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him in the toil for which he toils in the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats and darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. And behold, what I have seen to be good and what I've seen to be fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power, the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. Now this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, would you guide us? And more than guiding us, Father, help us to be aware of your presence, to to confess that we need you. I confess, Father, as one who speaks. Holy Spirit, would you guide my words? Would you calm my heart? Would we not live for the approval of man, but for the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus? Because this transforms us from one degree of glory to another as we gaze on the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Father, may you exalt Jesus so that you would draw all men to yourself. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Israelites are going into the promised land. So you can imagine maybe that's their retirement, though it's not retirement. You could just imagine that. They've worked all these 40 years to get to the promised land. And once they came to the promised land, Deuteronomy 8, 13, the Lord warns them. He says, listen, guys, things are about to get good. And see, when things get good in Scripture, that's when you really pray. I don't know if you noticed that. When do we pray? When things are bad, right? I mean, that's when we pray. But actually, when you read Paul and you read most of Scripture, they say, listen, when you're doing really good with the Lord, that's when you really need to be on your knees, Because when things get good, often we kind of get led astray. And so things are about to get really, really good. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 13, the Lord speaks to him and says, Hey, when your herds and your flocks multiply, when your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, verse 14, then your heart will be lifted up. You'll have joy. But you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, who brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, you'll forget that God has delivered you because wealth has a way of communicating to us that we're in control, that we've got it, that we're self-sufficient, that we don't need him. See, wealth is deceitful in that it, it lies to us, that it doesn't have an influence, but second, it tells us that we are in control. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter five and six is gonna talk about the futility of wealth in three ways. One is there's the futility of making wealth our goal. And by futility, what he means is it doesn't work. 
that life under the sun as we pursue the things that are good in this creation and yet when we make them ultimate, they fail us. When we pursue wealth as an ultimate goal, it is futility. It, it doesn't satisfy. And then he's also gonna say it's futile to pursue wealth because you're either gonna lose it or second or third, you're gonna leave it behind. So wealth is futile in that in pursuing it, it's not an end in itself. We're gonna have to leave it behind or we're gonna lose it. So let's jump back in, verse eight, as we look at the futility of making wealth the goal of our life. Here's the problem, verse eight. If you see in a province, a state, a country, oppression of the poor, and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. So human history is about oppression and injustice. He's saying as as you see that in your own country, in your own neighborhood, in your own city, don't be amazed. And here's what that oppression looks like. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there is a higher one over them. Now the idea here is about oppression and corruption. It's not about justice. It's not like when the one guy does something bad, there's a higher guy over him to make it right. He's saying, no, if you're oppressed by the guy that's lower down on the totem pole, guess what's above him? Somebody who's unjust. And guess who's above him is somebody who's unjust. And there's someone unjust above him. And he's saying, as I look at the injustice in the world, it's driven by greed. That what he's describing is when you make wealth your end, wealth often leads to the oppression of others. Now, in Scripture, there are three categories for wealth in terms of wealth and righteousness, wealth and sin. There is the righteous poor, but there's also the unrighteous poor. So poverty is not a virtue. There's also the righteous rich, and there's the unrighteous rich. There are many in Scripture who are righteous and rich. There are many in Scripture who are unrighteous and rich. But the challenge is, with wealth, there is a temptation that hits all hearts, Now, to the poor, they assume it's gonna work and it's gonna bring joy. To the rich, they know it doesn't bring joy, but they may be deluded in the reality of how much joy it can give. And so scripture's not saying that poverty is somehow a blessing or that that riches are somehow evil. It's rather how the heart engages and the affections and our desires attached to wealth. And the way he concludes that is in verse nine, and this is a gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, this verse is kind of, obscure, actually in the original language, or if you compare translations, really obscure. I think he's saying, here's a king that wants cultivated fields, but he does it to his own benefit and not the benefit of his laborers. That one of the ways that greed oppresses is it oppresses systematically. You know, the Bible addresses sin as sin addresses the individual heart. And the gospel solves that by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The heart is healed. We are born again. We're given a new heart. And hopefully that heart begins to cultivate the desires of the Father. So sin addresses the individual. But you know, sin also addresses broken systems. And that's what he's describing. That sin also impacts governments. It impacts economics. There is no economic system on the earth right now that comes from the hand of God. Now, we love our economic system, and I'm not disparaging that, but it's not going to bring about the kingdom of God. Can we accept that? I mean, that's pretty simple. The only thing that's gonna bring about the kingdom of God when it comes to our wealth is God's vision for wealth. But see, that's what the church is supposed to be. We are a city on a hill. Now, what that means is you're a city inside a city. And in this city, this Denver city, this state of Colorado, there's a way of viewing wealth and doing wealth. And those people are asking, how do the people of God do wealth? 
We are to be an alternative culture inside a culture. That's the kingdom of God. We are to see money differently based on the love we have for God, his knowledge of us and our knowledge of him and his grace and his mercy through the gospel that while we were poor, remember this, Corinthians, while we were poor, Jesus who was rich, and the idea of rich was being with the Father, he became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich. Paul's using this metaphor of wealth to describe our sinfulness and the riches of Jesus' righteousness that he left the Father's throne so that we could be exalted to the Father. Wealth is deceptive. It oppresses the individual, but notice uh, it oppresses systems, but in verse 10, it also can oppress the human heart. So he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied. Doesn't matter, we still try. We're not gonna give up on that pursuit. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. And he's saying it's futile. It's vanity to try to find satisfaction, love, significance, meaning, and purpose in wealth. He's simply saying it's not found there. And here's one of the reasons why it's vanity. Verse 11, because when goods increase, so do your family and your neighbors and your taxes and the people who want to enjoy them. That's what he's saying. They increase those who eat them. And what advantage is all that wealth to their owner except that he can look at them? But the sweet of the laborer is, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats much or little, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now he's tapping into something. Now Christianity is very paradoxical. On the one hand, it says creation is good. But creation is not God. We love the created. In fact, the great reformer Martin Luther said, if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, here's what I'd do. You know what he'd do? He said, I'd plant a tree. And you're like, what? I'd plant a tree. Why? Because when God comes back, the trees are going to shout. And all creation is going to glorify God. He said, listen, I'd plant a tree. I'd plant a tree. Now, I forgot my point on that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, yeah. A Christian is paradoxical in that we embrace creation, but we deny creation as well. We say that creation can't give us what God can. And what he's describing when he talks about the sleep of a laborer, he's saying the laborer is working and he finds joy in his work, not just in the material benefits his work can give him. That's the difference between the laborer And the rich man, the rich man is working in this case and what he's looking for is the profit from his work and he thinks this profit is going to give him contentment, joy and peace in life. The laborer is the one who looks at his work and he finds joy in what he does. That as Paul says, do everything to the glory of God, that we work for God's glory and we work to love our neighbor. And so the joy of work is in work. God has created us to work. And in creating us the work, we are to image God, his character, his goodness. And our focus isn't just on the wealth that's gonna come from that. Now, often in a capitalistic society, that's where our eyes are. It's about the production of wealth. And some of us have a working job that does produce wealth. And it's good to give your heart fully and your energy fully to what you do. But the joy he's saying, the contentment is in what you do, not what you get from what you do. Do you see the difference? And those are very subtle ways 
of doing work. It doesn't mean that the outcome doesn't matter, but it's not gonna satisfy in the way that God has created you to glorify him in what you do and in a way that loves our neighbor as ourself. It's the work that matters. So Ecclesiastes 4, 6, we talked about this a few weeks ago. He says, here's the solution. Better is a handful of quietness, and if one hand is full of quietness, the other is full of work, than two handfuls of work, of toil, and a striving after the wind. That what God wants us to do is to give one hand to work, and see the other hand is always open to listen to the Father, to receive our identity from him, to rejoice in the goodness of life, the moments of life of eating and drinking, the relationships we have. One as we work is always open to the Father. But see, if you have two hands out there, you have two hands because you wanna grab. And what that does is it shuts down the voice of the Father in your life and money becomes your identity rather than your relationship with God. That distorts all things. Life is not about what we can gain. Life itself is a gift. It's a gift of God's grace given to us. You know, in 2019, Charles Schwab did this survey about what Americans thought they needed to be content. So it's a little tricky there because he's like, how much money do you think you need to be content? As if there's a certain amount, right? And we probably all have a number. I mean, if we could be honest, that's the culture we live in. What's your number? I think there used to be an ad, Fidelity or something. What's your, what's your number? But they were asking the question, what number do you think you need? Now, when they did this survey, as you can imagine, across the United States, it was different according to regions and areas based on cost of living. But the general average was 1.1 million. Most Americans, and you're probably thinking, okay, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. I could be content with 1.1 million, but the thing it cannot, this survey could not address is whether they would really be content and satisfied. Because most studies that say with the great accumulation of wealth doesn't come equally the great accumulation of health or even satisfaction. You can't measure satisfaction. So the first thing he tells us is there's a futility in making wealth our goal and our pursuit. But second, there's a futility in wealth and that wealth is easily lost. It's quickly taken from us. Again, I was reading an article this week about these two Kentucky women who had uh, one, uh, one had won 100,000, the other had won 225,000 of those scratch-off games, and they were interviewing them. And this woman was being interviewed by the lottery, and she said, as she just won her $225,000, she said, I am so happy. And I'm sure she was. Nothing bothers me right now, she told lottery officials. It is a lie that money doesn't make you happy. And listen, we believe her in that moment, right? Absolutely, in that moment, there probably is a sense of some kind of security, some kind of contentment. But how does that moment play out over the duration of her life. You know, there's a documentary that ESPN put together, I've seen this called Broke. It's about different athletes, and these athletes like Mike Tyson, and uh, different athletes that had made tremendous, I mean, just tremendous amounts of money, and yet all of them in their life had gone broke. And I started doing some research on this, and I was reading up on it. You know, 78, and this is really hard for me to believe, but 78% of NFL players within five years of leaving the NFL are broke. 
and file for bankruptcy. 78%. Now realize the average NFL player plays for like three years. Most of them don't last and make a lot of money. But 78%. And when it comes to the NBA, they're doing a little bit better, a little bit better. 60% of NBA players within five years, they lose their money. And so here is a story of someone who more than likely probably didn't start rich, but fell into this great windfall based on their talents and their abilities, and it's a great story. But what they talk about in this um, documentary broke, the painfulness was losing the money, not being poor. That when they were poor, they were fairly content. Now, they didn't know. Certainly, children don't tend to know that they're poor. But the most painful thing that broke relationships, that really caused them to drive into addiction and self you know, self-harmful habits was the loss of money stole away their identity and it caused their life to feel empty and futile. And see, that's what he's describing in verse 13. He says in verse 13, there's a grievous evil, something that's futile. It's like smoke, it's foolish. I've seen under the sun riches that were kept by their owner to his hurt. So he's holding on to something and it's gonna cause him hurt. Now, one of the ways it's gonna hurt him is verse 14, those riches were lost in a bad venture. And now he is the father of a son, but he has no inheritance. He has nothing to give his son. The loss of potential wealth, the loss of an opportunity can be painful and it will stick in your memory. And I know some of you are thinking about it right now for years. Let me tell you one story. You know, early on in my ministry, I was a part of this church that was built in the 1800s, 1860s. Really cool. You know, this old New England church. And so it had been a part of a denomination called the American Baptists for many, many years. Now, over time, the American Baptists from the 1860s to today had kind of lost its way. But they had accumulated, because of the years it was in business, you could say, a ton of endowments. And one of their biggest endowments was towards seminary students. They would pay all your seminary bills plus future doctoral bills as you got a doctorate of ministry. So I was excited, okay? Because I'm thinking, man, they're gonna pay off all my bills. I got next to nothing. We've got all this, this debt that we gotta pay off. This is gonna be fantastic. Now, the challenge with the American Baptist Church is that they've kind of gone in a direction I disagreed with. But a lot of my friends in the American Baptist Church just said, hold your nose, just hold your nose, bud. Listen, listen, hold your nose, just go through it. It's gonna help you out. You'd rather have that money go to you, right, than to someone else. And well, I got into this conversation and, and we paid $1,500 to go through this psychological testing and all this stuff to make sure I was fit to be in the American Baptist Church. And that this, this group of people were so concerned about issues I wasn't concerned about. They were concerned about me voting other churches out based on what the pastor was like or his moral background. And I finally got so frustrated, and listen, this is where I lost all the money. And I looked at this committee and I said, and you guys don't even care that I beat my wife. Now, I don't beat my wife. <laughs> but I was so frustrated with their focus and what they were focused on that they didn't care about my character. They didn't care about what I believed. And listen, there's some great people in the American Baptist Church. I'm not trying to disparage that whole group. And when I said that, I lost all the money. And as a young man, and I probably shouldn't have taken it from him anyways as I look back, but as a young man in my 20s, I thought, that was really stupid. <laughs> you were arrogant and prideful and, and dumb. And, and I'd wake up at night worrying about that. And every time I had to write that check, right? We had these 
I had to send that check off and I kept thinking, man, this could have been paid for. I could be eating steak right now, not ramen. And, and that's wealth, isn't it? it? It carries on and it affects, it affects who you are. It affects your ability to enjoy the moment because of the weight of that wealth and what you think it says about you. But he's telling us, we're going to lose it. We're going to leave it behind. And that's the futility of wealth and putting your identity in it is that it's easily lost. And then finally, he says, well, so making wealth your goal is futile. The fact that you can lose it makes wealth futile. But finally, you're going to leave it behind. So watch this, verse 15. And he says, and he came. So this person came from his mother's womb and he shall go. Naked you come into the world. You take nothing for your toil. And you carry nothing away in your hand. That life is pretty similar to Monopoly. Right? You can win the board, but it's all going back into the box. Steve Jobs, when he died, he had a net worth of $10.2 billion. And yet he's going to die. He died just like we died with nothing. Verse 16, and as the writer of Ecclesiastes looks at a, a person that's giving their life to their wealth, they leave it behind. He says, it's, it's smoke. It's vanity. All those sleepless nights, all the identity coming from that, and yet it's just ripped away from us at the moment of death. Verse 16, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there? What's profit? What's, what's at the end of it all but just simply spitting into the wind? He's toiling for the wind. Moreover, all his days... He eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. Hoarding wealth is foolish because it doesn't take into account the reality of death. And this is something Jesus actually talked about. He had a parable of this guy that had so much stuff. He's like, what am I going to do? I got too much. So I'm just going to build more. Bigger barns. I'm going to build more and more and more. And he says to this man, you fool, you fool. You didn't take into reality through your wealth the reality of death. And he says, your soul is now, it's required of you. So that the things that are prepared, who are they going to be for? Someone else. Wealth cannot meet the desire of the human soul. So what is the solution? And thankfully, verses 18 through 20 are there. There is a solution. It's not abandoning money or abandoning wealth. It's understanding the role of contentment and who is in control. So watch this first one. I mean, uh, verse 18. Let me turn there. Behold, what I've seen to be good, here is something that is good, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun. The few days of life, notice that God has given. God's name suddenly shows up. And he said, God is the one who gives. God is the one who gives life. So I want you to pause this for a moment, reflect on this. How much of your success is based on you? And how much of your success is based on circumstances that are 100% outside your control? Did you determine the economy you grew up in? Did you determine that you just happened to have good math skills, good design skills, and those were things that were necessary in that era and decade and century in which you live? You could have been born in the 12th century. I don't know what was necessary agricultural skills. Think about it. 
Though there is a lot of industry and energy put into what we do, a lot of what our success is based on is the family we're born in, the natural abilities we have, the economy, the country we live in, maybe at times even our gender, the color of our skin. How much of those influences determine the outcome and how much do we really determine the outcome? See, we think it's 90% us, 10% God. I'd say it's about 99% God and maybe 1% us. Not that diligence, hard work, and attitude, listen, they matter. And between the people sitting next to you, you know the difference. But in the end, God is the one that creates your lot. What's your lot? It's not something you grin and bear. It's the family you come from. It's the intelligence you have. It's the economy you're born into. It's the precedence you're under. It's all of that. And he's saying all of that is a gift of God's grace. And when we eat and drink, we recognize we are dependent upon the Father to give us what we need. And so he says in verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power, notice the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice and is told, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Wealth is a gift from God. And as the old hymn says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. God, thou my inheritance, now and always. Christ of my own, I lost it. (laughs) Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven. May this be our prayer. My treasure, my treasure, thou art. Father, you have made us your treasure. And may that hit us by the power of grace that in our sinful, broken condition, we are your treasure, that you treasured us so that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. You called us your chosen people, holy and precious. You see us, Father, today as blameless in your sight because we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And Father, if you have treasured us to that depth, would we respond with rejoicing? Would we respond, Father, and treasure you, the gifts that you've given? Would we acknowledge the difficult days, the days where we cast our burdens on you because you care for us? But Father, would we also pause In the midst of our anxiety and worry about tomorrow, you have given us the opportunity to celebrate with others today, to love deeply, to have meaning and purpose that comes from you and to know, Father, we're not in control. And what we can control is very small compared to, Father, what you have set out in the course of our lives. Help us to rest in you, to trust in you, and to be generous towards you. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.